Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Jonathan Mitzi. Jonathan is a Maltese British architect and designer and founding director of architecture and design firm Mitzi Studio. Uh, Jonathan, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Yes, um, good day and um, thank you for inviting us on on the podcast. Um, Mm. Very honoured to be here. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Um, the whole reason that we're here is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we start there because it has proven to be, I'm sure you'll agree, Jonathan, one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders in all walks of life. But for yourselves working in the architecture industry, to what extent has this affected you and your operations? Ah. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, massively, we have never encountered, I mean, the whole world's never encountered um, such a challenging uh, virus and set of conditions, you know, to work with. Um, I mean, immediately, we obviously followed the government's advice and um, started working from home. Actually, we, we, we started working from home slightly before the official government advice of working from home came out. Um, mainly also because I'm European and uh, my brother lives in Italy and we you know we were seeing what's happening to him so we, we sort of probably were a couple of weeks ahead of the official advice in terms of working from home um, fortunately you know we, we have two studios between our primary studios in London but we also recently opened a studio in Malta um, and we're used to remote working so we had the um, remote Sort of infrastructural platform to work remotely. So I think that was pretty smooth from an operations point of view um, and from a logistics sort of, you know, physical space. Uh, however, the challenges of our actual business and, and you know, jobs coming in and, and all that, that's, that's a, whole, a whole different ball game and an ever sort of changing um, sort of landscape, you know, in terms mm. of where we are, where we were, where we were in January in first quarter, second quarter, now third quarter, um, you know, it's changed a lot and we can expand on that. And what sort of future do you think the industry can expect in the long term as a result of what's come about during this lockdown period? In terms of architecture and design? Is that is that what you mean? Yes, the yes. industry in terms of yeah. Um, well, look, I think the the positives that have come out of it are, I think, remote work is, is very and flexible employment is very important. Um, so there are some positives in that. I think um, people are realizing that you don't have to do all these lengthy commutes um, and you know spending up to anywhere up to three hours commuting to London is very challenging on staff um, and so there are health benefits for coming out of it I mean really the first sort of quarter second quarter I've never seen my my team look so fresh 
from the fact that they are a lot better rested and, uh, you know, have other aspects of life that are balanced out. So that's really positive. And I think that will carry on. I think a degree, I mean, people do need to be in the workplace, but I think a degree of flexibility mm-hmm. will, will have positive aspects on the industry. I think environmentally, the outlook and the importance of um, creating more carbon neutral projects and integrating um, integrating the environmental impact of what we do as architects, you know, um, is becoming more and more integrated and becoming more and more uh, recognized as a primary um, uh, core objective that always has to be outlined at the initial stage of our briefs or projects. So, you know, that's good. Um, Obviously, there are negatives, and the negatives are uh, we are being hit by by this crisis um, from obviously investors and developers um, and the uncertainty of the market, um, meaning that there is less work now available, and a lot of firms are having to um, make redundancies. Um, you know, job security is down, um, and you know that's what we're, we're obviously most concerned about. Is you know, how long can this go on for? Mm. Um, I think the um, we were as a studio, we were fine the very first two quarters. Um, I was very happy that the scheme um, of the Photo scheme got extended because we didn't sign up to it at first because we were okay, but we, you know, we were worried that at the end of the second quarter things were going to get worse, and sure enough, they were. Thankfully, got extended, and we had to tap into flexible furlough schemes. Um, and you know, we are, you know, we're okay till the end of the year. Uh, we're also fortunate that we opened a studio in Malta a few years ago, which means that there is other work from you know, other countries coming in, which whose economy hasn't been as badly affected as the United Kingdom. But you know, the thing we're worried about now is is how long can we weather um, this storm of. Um, of, of, of our pipeline, of our job stream coming in. I suppose that when you're starting your own business, you always expect there to be challenges, but perhaps never a challenge of this magnitude. And just sort of reflecting on going on sort of nine years ago when you did found your own business, Jonathan, and decide to um, form Mitzi Studio for yourself and go down that self-employed route. What was the inspiration behind sort of going it alone in the first place, would you say, in starting your own business? Well, yeah, we, we started, yeah, eight years, yeah, eight years ago, um, at beginning of 2012. I you know, had a, a very sort of lucky break in that we were invited to, for a tender to redesign the um, Pheasantry Welcome Center for the Royal Parks um, in, uh, in Bushy Park with an operating company, the Kalichi family. And it was a great opportunity and, and we happened to win, which allowed me to set up the studio. Um, in terms of aspirations, you know, as an architect, um, you 
you know, a lot of architects set out because they want to, you know, they want to change the world or, you know, have, have uh, you know, contribute to society. And um, I set out with, with, you know, based on those ideals um, to make a positive contribution to society. Um, and that is very much there still, that, that, that love for my profession. We are multidisciplinary, so we do everything from not just architecture. We do industrial design, automotive design, um, product, interior. Um, we have a real um, core focus on or speciality and passion into biomorphic design, which is design that is led and influenced by natural processes within the world and organic um, architecture, and that's implemented into our our design language, where we fuse um, state-of-the-art digital manufacturing techniques and tools, but always retaining a human element of um, traditional craft. And you know, we've been pursuing this for so long, and we are—I I can't help but feel—I mean, the whole world suffering, um, and there is this sort of agony and ecstasy in that. As a studio, we reached a sort of studio career um, high in the last few years when we won a commission to do a whole new fleet of food kiosks throughout the Royal Parks. Um, we also landed the commission to design the new Serpentine Coffee coffee House in Hyde Park on the Serpentine Bridge Road. Um, and that was great. You know, we, we, we reached work that we felt was contributing to society within the public realm. We were using our uh, design language that was very much rooted within um, traditional and organic design, and we managed to create functional, sculptural, architectural pieces for the public that have been well-received, that we feel have enriched the visitors' lives within the parks. And so we were in a real high in that respect. But... Uh, unfortunately, Brexit. You know, we've had three years of it now, and at the high of opening the Serpentine, uh, we also had to make somebody redundant, and that was the hardest thing in my career ever to make a staff member who'd been with me for six years redundant at the height of opening our most prominent uh, piece of public architecture. Uh, super ironic. You know, um, mm. and in the one hand, to feel that you know you're going somewhere and 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 feeling an element of success and and having great recognition from the industry in terms of accolades and awards, which is all lovely. But when the finance isn't making, uh, isn't equivalenting or being the equivalent to that, to that it, it doesn't really make sense. And you say, well, what am I doing wrong? Um, and it's part and parcel because it's a very competitive industry. Brexit is affecting everything. People start uh, cutting on prices to compete against other architects. Fees get lower and, and you start getting priced out. So you already have a limited job market because of Brexit. You then have fee scales which are going down because people need the work. And you end up in in a very you know unhealthy 
cycle of uh, socioeconomic variables that affect you as a as, as that affect your business from a cash flow uh, mm. point of view. So you know that was really hard, and making that person redundant at the at the height of our our achievement. Fortunately, we then went went on to win a tender for Royal Botanical Kew Gardens, which is uh, an incredible uh, project that will be a children's family thematic restaurant eating experience, uh, sort of like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory meets nature educational experience. And it's rooted in teaching children about the benefits, teaching children the role of the elements within the the, um, ecosystem, the journey between plants to plate in terms of how we harvest food and then the nutrients that you get and benefits from from fruit and veg. And it's an amazing brief, amazing client. Thankfully, we won that. That was September 2019. However, since September 2019, we haven't landed another commission. All the leads, we started off the year in January amazing with a lot of leads, more than we've ever um, had before. Coronavirus hit, those all went, and you know we've had projects on hold which just haven't not come back to life. So we are we're very worried, you know, um, and uh, we are doing. I'm doing everything to fight for job security. We've downsized our physical space uh, because we're all working remotely. Um, unfortunately, our lease had just come to an end. Uh, we are trying to put more measures in place to weather this next storm. I do think we're going to come out of it. I do think the world is is, is going to get better when we have rapid testing and we have uh, vaccines combined. I think that's the answer. And But it's going to be a very tough, very, very tough next um, next six months, certainly till the second quarter of 2021. Mm, it is going to be mm, certainly going to be difficult. I think you're absolutely right in uh, saying that. And just focusing on the future before we do wrap things up on the program, what are you really hoping to have achieved by this time next year? And where do you ideally want the business to be in light of those challenges? Um, first and foremost, I want to ensure that my team are still together, and that is my primary concern right now. The primary concern is, you know, we can have pandemic, and we can, you know, if we have to go as far as losing a physical space, studio, and all of these things that need to happen, you know, we can deal with that. But I cannot um, withstand. I just, you know, one thing I just cannot let happen is that. We run our studio like a family, and we're a small boutique design studio. And the thought of us not being together uh, this time next year—that that's what worries me most. So that's first and foremost. I want to ensure that the, that the team we've built over eight years is still together, and that we are operating um, efficiently in a, at the environment. And still, obviously, we want to continue doing work that has great social environmental impact on society that you know that those are the commissions we want to do because that's where we feel we can add the most value to society um so but first and foremost it's team survival 
health and and then come from that is to just build upon you know the 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 work we're doing within the public realm and hopefully keep keep assisting society in, in through the role of architecture and the service we provide it's certainly going to be an interesting um, year ahead um, as essentially the business and the industry really sort of gears up to brace the impact, not just of the ongoing situation, but also, of course, Brexit as well. And um, it's something we'll be keeping a close eye on ourselves, Jonathan, um, also. And I think it would be wonderful, just given how enlightening it's been having you join us today, to catch up at some point and have you back on the show with us at some point in the next 12 months, just sure. to see how things yeah, are coming along. Absolutely. absolutely. Maybe hopefully we'll be able to do this interview in person. <laughs> hopefully not, so. Not remotely working from home. Mm. You know. Hopefully so for sure. And um, also um, let's hope that there's some positive news to uh, share by that point in time as well. I've yeah. thoroughly enjoyed welcoming you onto the uh, the programme uh, for sure, Jonathan. And uh, most importantly, um, until we do touch base again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on as well because there are still great many variables in how this could pan out. Yeah. Thank you. And likewise. You know, to yourself so um, thank you very much I would also reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in today do please continue to look after yourselves and others because it does make a real real difference in saving lives it was an absolute yeah, pleasure absolutely. to. It, yes absolutely, absolutely. It was a pleasure to welcome Jonathan Mitzi onto the programme today, designer, architect and founding director of Mitzi Studio. Um, Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, having held various senior positions in the Cabinet of former Prime Minister Tony Blair and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hills constituency for 28 years. He has been a member of the Upper House of Parliament since August 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can. Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you, 
and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. 
but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top 
I think soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario 
planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticize the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well in scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you 
start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from 
the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. 
Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.